0: Well, first things first. I want to wish you all a blessed and joy-filled Christmas. Yep, we are still in Christmas. The eighth day of Christmas. And if we were, and I hope that none of us are, like the young woman in the 12 days of Christmas, we will have received by this time from our true love, eight partridges. Remember, you get one every day, the same gift. 14 turtle doves, 18 French hens, and so on, and so on. And don't forget when you get to the eighth day, eight maids milking. Therefore, there must be cows somewhere in that house. And of course, the 14 swans a-swimming in something, perhaps her bathtub. This Christmas ditty, it's hardly a carol, is a peon to excess. A total immersion in the celebration of the annual savior of the economy who speaks in the parables of the dollar sign at the expense of the savior of the world. But our New Testament lesson this morning won't permit us to forget what was celebrated eight days ago won't let us in the common vernacular disremember that the birth of our Lord has eternal implications. And as we will sing in our closing hymn, which happens to be my favorite Christmas carol, Christ lays aside his glory, a glory that has been his from all eternity and endures a death he doesn't deserve, so that you and I might be freed from a punishment we do deserve and raised to glory that we cannot begin to merit. Glory to the newborn king. As the great Swiss Theologian Karl Barth wrote numerous times, the church has no other time in this world but that of Advent. How so? I've just alluded to Good Friday and Easter, and now I have cited Advent. Have I forgotten that we're still in the season of Christmas? Well, Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest uh, who lives not too far from here, wrote um, powerfully these words as an answer. There is no time given to you and me in this life other than this time, now, here. This instant, the time between the first coming of our Lord in humility and his second coming in glory. The birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is one of those watershed moments anchored firmly in history. But you wouldn't know it. From the way in which the secular press and the chat shows ignore Christian uh, Christmas in this post-Christian, politically correct TikTok, woke, Facebook, Twitter obsessed, chaotic world in which you and I live and move and have our being. However, as the famous Jewish rabbi whose works I studied in seminary, an Old Testament scholar, Abraham Heschel wrote, Jesus Christ is of supreme importance or he is of no importance at all. The one thing he cannot be is moderately important. Either he was born so that you and I no more may die, or he is the greatest fraud who ever lived, one who is apparently capable of encouraging so many to spend so much in honor of an imagined God in whom they do not believe. My dear people, the birth life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, the author of our salvation, as we will hear this morning in the Eucharistic prayer. The Jesus who one carol tells us is Lord at thy birth. This Jesus is Lord of all, or he is Lord not at all. And as Paul implies in our New Testament reading this morning from Philippians, Jesus is not Lord just for those who happen to believe he's Lord. As another great hymn proclaims, it's number 435 in your hymnal, if you care to give it a look sometime. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess him, King of glory, now. When? Now. Here. This morning. Again. The firstborn of all creation, the head of the church and the author of our salvation. Last week, after Christmas Day, the church remembered in order our patron, Stephen, the first martyr, then John the Apostle, and then the Feast of the Holy Innocents, murdered under Herod's orders. Because you see, Herod was a shy, sly, shrewd politician, a tyrant, and he also understood too well the implications of Jesus's birth 2,000 years ago. Hence, the slaughter of innocent children under two years of age. And such an horrific occurrence has hardly ceased as we remember seemingly daily the killing of children, even in western Connecticut. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple hierarchy grasped the implication of Jesus' birth for their own purposes. Pilate comprehended the politics and saw to it that Rome would do what Rome did best to those who had visions of another king, another kingdom. Death would have the last word. As 2023 begins, nothing much has changed. Jesus remains a dangerous and inconvenient truth. In a poem written, oh, I would suspect some 40 years ago, maybe longer, by a Brit named Philip Turner, Turner imagines the setting perfectly in his piece if Jesus were born today. And he writes this if Jesus were born today, we'd have to end it all. Heretic, fundamentalist, literalist, Puritan, pacifist, nonconformist, we take him away and quietly end the argument. But there's always a but, isn't there? But. Turner continues, the argument would rumble in the ground at the end of three days and would break out and walk around and say, I am the resurrection and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me. This past Tuesday, we celebrated the feast of St. John, and John announces to each of us at the beginning of his gospel that in Jesus, the light of the world shines forth upon us. More than a hundred years ago, the Anglican priest Frederick Dennison Morris declared that the word of God converts every record of the past into a message for the present, including a collect that we prayed two weeks ago, that at his coming and coming again, he may find in each of us a mansion prepared for himself. And St. Paul never tires of reminding us about the principalities and powers that would attempt to persuade us that there is no kingdom of God, that every new technological gadget, every new fashion, every new idol is all that we need to be part of this Voltairian best of all possible worlds. But, just one more but, as so many Christians have witnessed so compellingly over the centuries, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, and the ever-present Advent are the first visible signs that the revolution is already underway that the powers have been defeated, that Jesus has exalted and been exalted so that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That you and I nearly 2,000 years later, are not merely what Bishop Tom Wright calls rescued non-entities. Rather, we are restored human beings with a vocation to play a vital part in God's purposes for the world. You may wonder why the cross and resurrection during Christmastide. You may especially wonder, why Advent? The answer is simple. Because it's the beginning of a new year, Because for each of us to consider the implications of the cross and resurrection and Christ's coming again can chart a course not only for our individual lives, but also for this church in the year ahead. Indeed, in the years ahead. So let me begin and by trying to be, bring all of this together with an illustration. I suspect many of us remember Disney all the way back to Bambi and Snow White and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Unfortunately, I can remember that far back. But in one of the more modern adaptations, Aladdin, the young hero takes the Princess Jasmine on a magic carpet ride and he asks her to behold a whole new world. It's a lovely vision, and I've been caught up in the romance of that often enough. Sometimes what you see depends a great deal on the perspective from which you see it. However, I've also been blind, and I thought to myself, What if, even at 81, I acted on the truth that the birth of Jesus, his cross and resurrection, his promise that he would come again, were really the events that opened a whole new world? And as Bishop Wright notes that his reconciling death sets you and me free to take up our new vocations. What if I acted on the truth that I was designed by the creator God to reflect the worship of all creation back to him, that I was to borrow a metaphor to be an angled mirror and that the purpose of the cradle, the cross, and the future crown is to take me from where I am presently to that intended goal. So that being said, I want to leave you with a question or two with which to begin the new year. First, you and I need to be reminded that the first Christians lived in a downright hostile environment. Pick up a newspaper, listen to a newscast today, and you discover that you and I live in a world that is no less hostile to the message of the creche, the cross, the resurrection, and the crown to come. The powers are fighting back, not just then, but now, even here in our apparently openly secure country. So here's question one. What does it mean for you and for me to work for the kingdom of God in a world that neither wants nor expects any such thing? In a world that has replaced the communion table with the soccer field, The worship of the one true God with the latest American idol. The promise of the new heaven and the new earth with the technological gadgetry of the moment. Second, As Tom Wright reminds us so wisely in his books and in his podcasts, the victory has been launched in the incarnation. It has been won on the cross and through the empty tomb. It is now being implemented by his people as we wait expectantly for his coming in glory. So here's the second and final question, a variation on the first. If the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus really did launch a revolution, what does it look like and how do you and I join in? A blessed and holy Christmas to you all, and may it be accompanied by a clear vision of our Lord's coming in glory, and a thinking new year. Glory to the newborn King. the name of the Father, and of the Son,